Take your Bible and turn as we continue our study um, in the life of David. Actually, we're studying First and Second Samuel, and he falls into that. We're looking at Second uh, Samuel chapter eleven today. Gino Caterossi and his wife Graciala were enjoying their retirement in Southside, Florida, along with their daughter who was with them, and she's a single mom building a successful career as a photographer, and her seven-year-old Stella. So there were three generations together of them there in, in what Gino called his peaceful condo overlooking the ocean. At 1.30 in the morning on June the 24th, two years ago, that 12-story condominium complex split in half and fell to the ground. Only three people in that building survived. Ninety-eight people were killed, age from a, ranging from age one to ninety-eight. They're still investigating the cause. Millions of dollars have been spent trying to figure out what happened in that building. But the data seems to point to a small, hidden, but not insignificant issue with how the concrete pad beneath the swimming pool was connected to the pillars that went down into the ground to give it support. They're, they're looking at that. There's design issues, there's construction issues, but that hidden fault beneath the surface seems to be the culprit. One of the residents who died called her husband as the building began to shake there at 1.30, and all she was able to say before the phone went dead was, there's a sinkhole where the swimming pool used to be. And then the phone went dead. So we don't really know what happened in that building, but foundation settling, slow erosion, whatever was hidden there led to a collapse that in one particular family took out three generations. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 11, hidden fault lines that bring about the end, if you will. Massive destruction in generations to follow as we look at this unfold. Hidden but dangerous flaws in David's character. And we've seen hints of it all along as we've worked our way up to this. As I said last week, this is like... That scene in a movie that you've seen time and time again, and somehow you wish it would be different this time. But it's not. That hidden flaw, for instance, points us back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. God had given the Israelites provision and guidelines for what their king should be and what he should look like. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy 17. So when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and you dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law 
approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it on all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and by doing them. So the hidden fault line in David's life that became evident over the years was that he did indeed acquire many wives. So he did something he had been clearly commanded not to do. But he also did not do something, evidently, which was keep the law of God before him at all times. Before arriving in Herndon, if we go back, or Hebron rather, if we go back and look in 1 Samuel 25, David has two wives, which is one too many. And then during his seven-year reign in Hebron, he took four additional wives, according to 2 Samuel 3. And then David demanded and got back his first wife, Michael. That made seven. And when he became king, it tells us in 2 Samuel 5 of the United Nation, it says he took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. David is a passionate man. We've seen that in his life, but he is also a lust-filled man. And he cannot seem to quench that appetite. So today we see an impact. We see a collapse that impacts generations to come. And it's a whole lot like the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. I'll touch on that again in just a second. I was relating this verse to Susan out of 1 Kings 15. She says, I hate that verse. Here's what it says, 1 Kings 15, 5. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Except. All of us, especially I pray after we look at this word, all of us have those excepts, right? Those actions, those tendencies those habits, those hidden sins that we would just wish would stay in the closet, stay in the dark, stay hidden. Maybe God will use this passage to bring those out as they need to be. I put put in your sermon notes there that, and isn't it true, I was reading that, a couple of weeks ago, even people who are not in church, if given the opportunity to fill in that blank that you see in your sermon notes, David and, I, I know very few people who would not say David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba, right? We just, we just tend to couple David's name with those two names. Those names are forever linked to David. And, and so they are, they are common in that regard. But they're very different, though, in other ways, right? David is David and Goliath is a picture of untested, untrained faith that succeeds by God's grace and has the victory. When we look at David and Bathsheba in just a minute, we're going to see that he is old, he is tested, he's been tried. I love what Eugene Peterson says. Both David and Goliath bring David to places of testing. In meeting with Goliath, David is young, unknown, and untested. In meeting with Bathsheba, David is mature, well-known, and thoroughly tested. In the first meeting, in the first meeting, David emerges triumphant. In the second meeting, he goes down in defeat. All of us are familiar with this story. My fear is that we're too familiar with it. 
I'm afraid that we've heard it or had ideas about it to the extent that it doesn't even impact us anymore. But it's important that we, I'm so thankful that the Lord over the years has led us to just work through these books of the Bible. I would just soon skip chapter 11 and 12. Honestly, I'd be delighted if 1 Samuel ended at the end of chapter 10, but it doesn't. And I'm thankful to God that it doesn't because there's reason for that. God has given us this passage of Scripture and what follows, as, is, as He's given us all of the Scriptures, for our instruction. We can learn something from 1 Samuel 11 and 12. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, These things happen to them as an example, and they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Those of us living in these end times, this is given for our instruction. As he says in 2 Timothy 3, this scripture, like all of scripture, is given by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction. That we as God's people, the man and woman, that anyone, any one of us would be trained in righteousness. So he's given it for our instruction. He's also secondly given it to us for our warning. For our warning. These things took place as examples for us, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 10, that we might not desire evil as they did. Let us, then, then later on he says, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Years ago, I, I might have been in a place, maybe some of you would be in a place to read 1 Samuel chapter 11 and go, that'll never happen to me. Take heed, lest you fall. I'm going to read the passage, and I want you to listen as I do. And I want you to notice something. I want you to listen to the pace. Okay? It's quick. I want you to watch for the verbs, especially the verb sent. Pay attention to where you see the word sent. And notice that it's filled with this fast action, consequences, yes, but there's very little conversation. There's not much talking in this hookup. It's just action that's sordid and ugly and deadly. So listen as I read it. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. 
And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him, and, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence, and he drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on the couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go up near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone from up on the wall so that he died at the bez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back into the entrance of the gate. And then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let the matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Father, we just lift up this uh, account from your word to you so that you will, Lord, through the work of your spirit, take it and as you see fit, apply it to each of our lives, to our hearts. Lord, it is given for our instruction. It's given for our warning. And we pray that, uh, Lord, it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. You promise us, Lord, in Isaiah, that your word will do that. Today, Lord, it's a hard word, and oftentimes, more than not, our hearts are hard. So, God, we need you to do a work in us that this word could penetrate and accomplish your purposes. Thank you for the mercy that we just sang about. 
And just remind us even here at the start, Lord, that your great mercy overcomes the great sin of those who are in Christ. So I just pray you remind us of that, Lord, even as we jump into this mess. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So here we have this account. You heard it. Man, it's it's quick. It's fast-paced. And this, this, this event that spans several weeks, we understand that, right, from... From just the time frame that's before us here in these 27 verses is quick, but it spans several weeks. We understand that, but as we, as we read through this, you see in your outline, I've just, I've given you a few points to just kind of direct our steps through this. And it begins with what we read in these first four verses here, just this sad failure from King David. And there's several points that it do us well to pay attention to. One, he's at the top, right? He's at the top. He has received earlier in Second Samuel this promise from God, this covenant from promise from God that he and his descendants will be on the throne. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever, God promised. Forever. But God also said that I will discipline. I will discipline him with the stripes of the sons of men and the rod of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Even as we look at the train wreck of 2 Samuel 11, we understand that the purposes of God do not fail, right? And that his steadfast love will not depart And we can be thankful for that amazing grace, right? So that's given for us there. He is at the top. He has prestige. He has prominence. He has wealth. He has position. He has influence. His kingdom is growing. He has everything a man would want. And that is a most dangerous place to be. Most dangerous. He had in front of him in the word... God's promise, but he also had God's warning as he'd given the people, the Israelites in those former days. Be careful when you go into the land. Be careful that in your comfort and in your satisfaction, this is my paraphrase, that in your satisfaction you don't forget the Lord your God. Later on, King David's son Solomon, I think, would write these words. Two things I ask of you, deny them not from me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? David is not explicitly asking that stupid question, who is the Lord? But he's at the top and he has forgotten. Secondly, he is powerful. How many times did you hear the word sent? David is the king. And what do you do when the king gives a command? (laughs) Right? You obey it. You obey it. And he sent Joab and the army into battle. And they did what they were supposed to do. What I believe they'd probably taken an oath to do. Which is obey their king. 
He gave a command and it was done. And so he's powerful in that sense. He has people to do things for him, which is part of the problem here. And as you follow the roadmap of David's fall in 2 Samuel 11, you could follow it with that simple word sent, right? I mean, it's a morally neutral word, right? I mean, sent. But as you look at the text here and just follow that word, that word sent goes from his responsibilities as a king into his descent, where he goes from love and obedience to sinful calculation and cruelty and even murder. Verb by verb, one commentator said, we watch David remove himself from compassionate listening and personal intimacy with others to taking a position outside of and above others, giving orders and exercising power. He's powerful. David is also disengaged. The text makes it clear David remained at Jerusalem, and the writer wants that contrast to be seen, that while his armies are out fighting in the time of the year when culturally and just because of the weather, that's when you go and do your military campaigns, when it's not raining, when it's not the harvest season. It's the time of the year to go carry out those military escapades that are a part of your kingdom's purposes. Whatever that kingdom is and wherever those escapades may take you, it's the time of the year to do that. The people had asked God for a king earlier in First Samuel that would lead them out into battle. But David's not doing that this time. And it doesn't give us any reason why. There's no commentary in it. But it's clear that there's a contrast there. But David remained at Jerusalem. He's disengaged. And some say he's lazy based on what comes next. It happened late in the afternoon when he arose from his couch. Now, I I don't do well with naps. I wish I did better. Right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with a little power nap. I think they got it right down in the South America and places where the siesta is a part of that. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, the writer here seems to point us to the fact that while David's army is out on the battlefield, he's at home on the couch. And so there's just a sense that it's not right. Okay, something's not right. And it says that it happened that when he's out, that when he rises from his nap, And from his couch, he's walking on the roof of his house. And so David's on the top. He's powerful, but he's disengaged, and he is tempted. He is tempted. Now, I'm going to have more to say about Bathsheba in just a minute. But but notice what it tells us here. He is tempted, and he lingers on that temptation, it seems. He saw this woman bathing, and the Hebrew is, is, is just as clear as it can be. She was a knockout. She's very beautiful. And, and when the Bible says that in this Old Testament Hebrew language, well, she was beautiful. And David saw her. And the idea here is that he lingered over that. It's exactly what James says in the New Testament in verse 1, starting in 13. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
David is an illustration of James 1. So he's on the top. He's powerful. He's disengaged. He's tempted. And in verse 3, we see he is driven. And I don't mean driven in a good way. He sees what he wants. He seeks it out and he sins to get it. He sins to get it. He sent and inquired about the woman and, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he's driven, he lingers over what I believe he knows is off limits. I believe this question is disingenuous. After studying and listening to other, other, other people teach through this and looking at the, context, the context of it about who these men are that Bathsheba is related to, I think David knew exactly who she was. Look at it. I think he's just covering his tracks. The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Eliam and Uriah the Hittite, as we'll read later on in 2 Samuel 15, excuse me, later than that, they are a part of what is known as David's mighty men. Bathsheba's husband and her father, are in David's inner circle of military champions. I think he knew exactly who she was. Her grandfather, Ahithophel, was one of David's senior counselors, his advisors. So as, as we look at this, and, and I'll, I'll touch on it again in a few minutes, Ahithophel, her grandfather, is David's Counselor, I believe his peer, her husband and her father are in David's inner circle. Jim Hamilton says, he says there's no doubt that Bathsheba knew who David was and David knew who Bathsheba was. Hamilton goes on to say, in fact, that David was probably at her wedding. He probably celebrated her birth with her grandfather. He knew exactly who she was. And these words here give no suggestion that she had much to do with this or as far as much to say about it. And I'll touch on that in just a minute. So her husband's away. The king has sent his men to get her, to take her. There's a huge age difference between David and Bathsheba. I'm, I'm of the mind that she had no choice but to go. She had no choice. One writer said, once we understand Bathsheba's relationship with David, his adultery appears even more disgusting. The work of a dirty old man and a leering voyeur. A sexual predator whose lust is almost incestuous. David is on top. He's powerful. Yet he's disengaged. He's tempted. He lingers on that temptation. He's driven by his lust, exercises his power, sins for and takes that prize that he's looking for. It is a deadly avalanche. And he's warned. God, in his mercy from some unknown response, warns David. I can hear, I think implied in that is, David, do you know exactly who this girl is? She's the daughter of one of your best soldiers. 
She's the wife of one of your best soldiers. She's the granddaughter, for crying out loud, of one of your close advisors. David doesn't hear. He is determined and blinded by his own sin, addicted to what David wants, like so many of us are addicted to what we want. So he sent and he took. Which, is that not exactly what God said a human king would do? Back in 1 Samuel 8, you remember that? When he, was, when he was warning the people about what their king would do, he said, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself. He says later on in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 8, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. It doesn't say he'll take your daughters to be his. But he does. Proverbs 14 says, who is wise, excuse me, the one who is wise is caution and turns away from evil. But a fool is reckless and careless. David is on top. He is powerful. He is tempted. He remains too long with that temptation and acts on it. David is just what the writer of Proverbs 14 says he is. He's a fool. British historian Lord Acton, you've probably heard of him before. He wrote a series of letters back and forth with the, the bishop of the Church of England at the time, Bishop Crichton. And the issue was the moral failures of the popes and of the leaders of the church and of the politicians of the day. He was addressing that, that reality. And Lord Acton, unlike many, believed that the same moral standard that applied to the lowly common man should also be applied to the popes and the politicians. And his famous saying in one of the letters that he wrote, that he wrote says, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He said, great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more, when you super add the tendency and the certainty of corruption by authority, he said, there's no worse heresy than that of the office sanctifying the holder of it. Lord Acton is saying, the office means nothing compared to the heart. And absolute power corrupts absolutely, and David has absolute power and shows that his corrupted heart cannot be hidden. So it's clear, right? I mean, gosh, gosh, this is, it's amazing to see the difference so quickly. In chapter 10, David sent his servants to console and express sorrow and extend grace. And now one chapter later, this same king is still sending. Sending his henchmen to bring this woman to him. Sending so that his sin can be covered. Sending so that he can get what he wants. And this is exactly this process. What we see happening here is exactly what we saw happening in Genesis chapter 3. Right? Do you remember? 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, the exact same word in first Samuel in second Samuel 11, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. David saw a woman. She, he saw that she was good. Good to see. He desired her, he took her, he lay with her. David did what Adam and Eve did, exactly. And you know what? The world would never be the same after Genesis 3. And David's world will not be the same after 2 Samuel 11. The repercussions will go on and on and on. But God's purposes will stand. I have to keep telling myself that. The next thing we see is the unintended but unsurprising fruit of this, of this encounter. It's the only thing we ever hear from Bathsheba in this account. It says that she was purifying herself from her uncleanliness. She returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, notice that she was purifying herself from her uncleanliness. This is, I want to just take a second. I've, I've, I've read several articles. I'll post one that I read that I think was very helpful to me. There's some things about Bathsheba that we need to understand. I'm going to go ahead and say something that I'll say in our application point. In our over-sexualized, loose culture, we tend to feel like heterosexual sin is somehow better than other sexual sins. And so I fear that we're in a position where we might be ready to dismiss what David did as not that big of a deal. After all, they're consenting adults, right? I mean, she's just a teenager, but no, she's not. I don't think she is consenting in that sense. But we tend to dismiss heterosexual sin. Now... If we understand this much about Bathsheba, I think we can be fairly certain. This is based on what I've read, and, and I know folks will disagree. It's interesting. You go back and look at some of the old art about David and Bathsheba. Rembrandt did one of Bathsheba, this fully naked woman out there, you know, being tended to by her servants. Many of those paintings depict her as naked, fully naked, bathing out in the open. The first Bible that Martin Luther helped publish has her fully clothed, bathing out of a bowl, fulfilling the cleansing requirements of the law. So there's differences of opinion there. I'll give you that, and, and you may disagree with this. But I, I do believe that Bathsheba was, because of her relationships with her family, okay, she has a prominent grandfather who's in the administration of David. She has a prominent father and a prominent husband who are in David's inner circle of soldiers. She comes from a prominent family. And in this shame culture, okay, in the culture of her day, I think it would have been forefront in Bathsheba's mind that she had a family a family prominence, if you will, a family name to uphold. And I can't prove that, but I, I, I just feel like she would have understood who her family was. I also see clearly in the text that she was observing the Old Testament law. 
She was cleansing herself after her menstrual cycle. And the Old Testament law held for her to do that for a week. Well, what else happens after a week in the menstrual cycle? Well, she's ovulated and she's ready to be made pregnant. So the timing of this, I mean, that regard, it's, it's clear what's going to happen, even if they didn't understand it. But she's, she's observant to the law. And I believe the bathing that she's carrying out could very well have been just a ceremonial cleansing according to what the law commanded her to do. Not The text does not say she was fully naked. It just says she was bathing. And that she was bathing ceremonially. So it could have been out of a bowl. Third thing, and I touched on this, she is a teenager. She's old enough to be married. But it appears she's not had children yet. And in chapter 12 and verse 3, when Nathan confronts David, he's going to refer to her in her parable, in his parable, as a little ewe lamb. Here's what one writer said. Bathsheba would have, would have hardly been pursuing David. Rather, as a young female, she would have been unsure how to resist the king. The significant power distance between David and Bathsheba likely limited her ability to refuse the superior. Considering the social realities of 1 Samuel 11, it's most plausible that she was not seeking an extramarital relationship with David. And while the text is admittedly silent in that sense, the next chapter makes it clear. When David confronts, excuse me, when Nathan confronts David, there is zero mention of Bathsheba's fault. All fingers point squarely at David. Now, I understand, you know, that it takes two. I understand all of the arguments. I'm just saying that textually and contextually, David is clearly 100% responsible for what takes place. And I say all that to just help us keep our focus where it needs to be and where the text keeps the focus. And let us guard against the contextual Cultural under, you know, understanding of our day, well, it's just two consenting adults. That doesn't work anyway. Alright? Next comes this long, drawn out section of the text about the deceiver's failure, about the murderer's fallacy. I, I called it those things just simply because David's First has a plan A of deception, okay? When he finds out she's pregnant, let's bring her husband back from the battlefield. Let him sleep with his wife, which you'd think any guy would do after he's been away at war. And then nobody will know the difference except David and Bathsheba. That's the plan. So he sins to go get Uriah the Hittite. There's only one problem. Uriah is more honorable than King David. Uriah is more noble than the king. And so he sends for Uriah and he says, go down to your house and wash your feet. Wash your feet, scholars say, is just a euphemism for go have sex with your wife. Remember when Saul went to relieve himself in the cave with David, he covered his feet. That meant he dropped his pants or he dropped his whatever he was wearing. So the euphemism here is, Uriah, you've been away at war. Brother, go home. Enjoy your wife. 
But he didn't. And so David had him followed, evidently, and realized, no, he slept outside with the rest of the king's servants. That plan didn't work. So David has a plan B. It's to get him drunk. And it's interesting that before he carries out that, as he's confronting Uriah that morning after he doesn't do anything except go sleep with the king's servants, Uriah, what's up? And look, at it's amazing. So this Uriah the Hittite, okay, let's just recognize this for just a second. He is not a Jew. He is not an Israelite. He is a Gentile. And Uriah, the name, scholars say, means Yahweh is my light. So evidently, Uriah has taken up as a, as a legal resident there in Israel and has become a follower of Yahweh. He's a worshiper of God. And he is serving in God's army, right? He's serving in King David's army. So not only is he a worshiper of God, he's fighting in God's army. So here this Gentile is brought back before the king. And as David's trying to cover up the sin that he's done, Uriah says to him, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Just listen to the, to the words of Uriah. The servants, David, your servants, Joab, my leader, I'm serving him and I'm serving with your servants, David. We're camping in the field. So how can I go to my house? And eat and drink and lie with my wife. I believe David at some point in time has his soldiers take some kind of an oath. Do you remember when David went to get the showbread earlier in 1 Samuel? And the priest asked him whether or not his soldiers were, were clean according to the law. Had they had sex with their wives? And David said, my soldiers don't do that. This one doesn't do that, David. He's still in uniform. And David, his heart for God is way past yours. It's incredible. It's incredible. As you live and as your soul lives, I'll not do this thing. Yes, David is God's anointed. And yes, I still believe there is a heartbeat from God in his heart. But it is soft and slow. And it can't keep up with the speed of his passion. So in the morning, David tries another plan. I'll just get him drunk. And that didn't work either. Even drunk, Uriah is not going to go get in the bed with his wife. So plan B fails. So now David... Descends even lower. It's incredible. He writes a letter, it says, down there in verse 14. And I call it the murder's fallacy because it's a faulty, futile attempt to cover up, even though it seems to work in some sense. Do you see that Uriah is carrying his, uh, excuse me, do you see that, that Uriah is taking his own death sentence back to his commanding officer? David's written it. Evidently, he sealed it. Uriah, being the good soldier that he is, is not going to read something that's none of his business. And in that letter, David is given explicit command to send Uriah to the front, 
back up from him and leave him there to die. Joab's a better soldier than David, it seems. And Joab is just as willing to cover his backside as David is. Joab, we'll see again. It's a stupid plan on David's part. Because there's not a good general in the world that's going to carry it out this way. Not one who wants to maintain any relationship with his men. And so Uriah changes David's plan. And instead of sending Uriah alone, he sends a platoon or a group of soldiers. And they all die. They all die. James says the end of that sinful appetite is death. So David has ruined the life of a young girl. He's ruined the life of his counselor, whose granddaughter and granddaughter's husband. Their marriage has been destroyed. Death has come to this father in one sense as his daughter and son-in-law are blown up by David's sin. Do you see what's happening here? And I wonder, I, I just, I have to wonder if, if at any point in time David would just pause for one second. Like when that answer came to his question. David, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Oh, wow, how stupid could I be? Yeah, you're exactly right. Or I wonder if after she's pregnant, for one second he thought, oh man, I just gotta, we gotta deal with this in the right way. We just, we just need to, God has been faithful to protect me, to guard me, and I know his promise to me. I just need to trust God in this. Oh, David, for one second think that way. But no. There's so many places in here where if David would just pause for a minute, there's so many places where you and I, if we would just pause for one second and think about the consequence. Think about what could happen. But David doesn't do that. And so Joab sends word back. And Joab is aware that David, passionate, Sometimes short-fused. Joab is aware of what could happen when David gets the report that not only Uriah died, but so did some others. So Joab concocts the story. You know what's interesting about the conversations that take place in this chapter? They are concocted. They are scripted. Here's what Joab needs to hear. And Joab says, here's what the king needs to hear. So in the process of this massive cover-up, we need to be sure we're all singing from the same page. God, that's amazing. So he sends back this messenger. Here's what you're to tell David. David's read the Bible. He's going to know about what happened to Abimelech. If you go back and read that account, Abimelech got too close to the wall. This woman picked up a millstone, threw it over the wall, and killed him. David's going to know that. Joab knows David is going to know that. If David wonders why we got so close to the wall, remind him of that. Joab is concerned that David will be concerned. Rest easy, Joab. His heart is so stinking calloused, he doesn't care about those other soldiers that died. Do you see that? 
He doesn't care. He says, don't let the matter displease you, Joab. People die in battle. These people died. Be encouraged, Joab. The callousness and the casual way that David sees these consequences unfolding to him, before him, are just amazing. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 5 warns against those who call evil good and good evil. Believe it or not, David is doing that now. He's doing that now. And you know what? He doesn't even care. There's a moral bankruptcy here. A callousness that's astounding. And it should be terrifying. It should cause us to shake in our hearts as we see this happening to this man and to these other people. The cover-up fails, obviously. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, the set time of mourning, according to the law, was finished. David sent once more and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and she bore him a son. Were it not for this last sentence in the chapter, he's gotten away with it, right? The only people that know about it are David, Bathsheba, I'm sure those henchmen or whoever it was he sent to get that young girl, they probably go, well, I mean, you know, they're probably smart enough to put two and two together. And maybe there were some others who recognized what was going on. Probably Joab got it. So maybe with that, other than the exception of that small circle of people, David's gotten away with it. Nobody knows about it. All but they do. The only one that really matters saw it. And the English translation here is pretty weak. It's much more than this thing displeased the Lord. Literally, it says it was evil in God's eyes. It was evil in God's eyes. You see, David looked at Bathsheba and he saw something beautiful. God saw this whole thing as very ugly. And we need to call it what the Bible calls it. It's, it's sin. It's not an affair. It's adultery. It's not two consensual adults. I believe it's abuse. It's not love. It's lust. It's not sexy. It's sin. It's not romantic. It's ruin and destruction and death. That's what's before us in this chapter. Thank God for chapter 12. It's actually, if we'd had the time, I would have read both chapters together. Because praise God that he is gracious enough and committed enough to his own plans and purposes that he does the sending next. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. We'll, we'll see that next week. Let me wrap this up with some applications, okay? First, it should be abundantly clear. You and I, we need a king better than David. Amen? 
We need a king better than David. We need a king who, as you saw in your Sunday school class this morning, is holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. We need a king, like Peter says, committed no sin, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. We need a king who was, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, entirely obedient to God, even to the point of death on a cross. That's the kind of king we need. And that's the kind of king we get in Jesus. Now, the consequences of David's sin, as I said, are just like the consequences of Adam and Eve's. They're massive. Massive. And long-lasting. But they are not as long-lasting as the consequences of Jesus' obedience. By that, I mean what Paul says in Romans 5. In verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many die through one's man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following in one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following in many trespasses brought justification. So by one man's disobedience, he goes on and says in verse 19, many were made sinners, but by one man's obedience, many are made righteous. Praise God for that. That's the king we need. Number two, second application. For the redeemed, and we, co- we have to remember the context here. J- David is God's anointed king. And David does not lose his status, his place as God's anointed king. I believe it's a picture of God's grace that saves us eternally. But if we go, I'm off the hook. If that's our first response... I fear that grace has no hold on our heart. Because this account should shake us and wake us up to the danger of sin, especially, listen, especially sexual sin. God God gave David a heart for God, but David still had, clearly we see, a human heart. A sin-sick, addicted-to-self, easily-tempted heart. He still had it. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? So listen, brother or sister in Christ. The the concept of total depravity, we talked about that back a few years ago when we were celebrating the anniversary of the Reformation. The idea of total depravity does not mean that we are as wicked as we could possibly be. That's not what that means. It means that the fall was so serious that it affects the whole person. It captures our mind, our hearts, it grips our human nature. And our minds are darkened and weakened until God comes in and through His grace in Christ gives life to that darkened, dead heart. We have a new heart in Christ, but we still battle against the old one. And as the Puritan John Owen says, we have to be killing sin or sin will kill us. So we need to just be aware of that, church. It should shake us up. And thirdly, not only should it shake us, but it should unnumb us. I don't think that's a word, but I just unnumb us. It should it should resensitize our hearts 
to the seriousness of sexual sin and the need for purity. We live in a culture, right? We live in a culture where it is okay to identify someone by their sexual appetites. But the Bible won't let us do that. The Bible says we are created in God's image. The characteristic that marks all humanity is not our sexual orientation. It is the imago Dei in us. It is the image of God in us. We need to, we need to see that. We need to recognize that. And so we live in a culture that says we're defined by our sexual appetite. And what has happened in the church is that we've grown numb to the seriousness of heterosexual sin. I fear, and I could be way off base on this, I fear that, you know, yeah, it's a big deal that David slept with Bathsheba and committed adultery. My fear is that our response to that would be much greater if it was David and Dan. Or if it was David and Jonathan, which some say it was. I fear that we have allowed the culture and the, and the, our, our hearts being so desensitized to the seriousness of sexual sin that we in the church have somehow decided that heterosexual sin is better than homosexual sin. And we're way off base on that. I'm not, you know clearly, I'm not justifying either of those, right? My point is this, and I, and I got this from the book that I'm so thankful some of our families are going through by Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, and the Gospel by Christopher Yoon. I encourage you to get that book and read it. Even, even as an adult without children or teenagers in your own, get that book and read it. Because God's desire for us is not heterosexuality over homosexuality. God's desire for us is holiness. Period. Purity if you're single. Committed to that covenant love relationship to your wife or husband if you're married. Period. That's his desire. That's his goal. Anything other than that is the sin of David. And so we need to recognize that and recognize that it should shock us what happens with David. And it should shock us when we see where our culture is at. God's design for us and his goal for us is holiness. It's purity. And when we fall short of that, by his grace, sin is forgiven through Christ as we confess it and repent of it. And through the power of his Holy Spirit, sanctification takes place in our lives. That's what it means to be killing sin. Sanctification through the work of God's Spirit. 150 years ago, J.C. Ryle wrote this. He wrote it to young men in his church, but it's applicable to all young people. Listen to what he said. Remember what I say. This was 150 years ago. I'm going to sound like a prude when I say this, but just listen to it. If you would cleave to earthly pleasures, these are the things which murder souls. There is no sure way to get a seared conscience and a hard and penitent heart than to give way to the desires of the flesh and the mind. It seems nothing at first, but it tells in the long run. If you cleave to earthly pleasures, they are all unsatisfying, all empty, and all vain. They're like the locust in the vision in Revelation. They seem to have crowns on their heads, but they have stingers, real stings. All is not gold that glitters, Ralph says. All is not good that tastes sweet. All is not pleasure 
that pleases for a time. For adults, those of us past those years, whatever they may be, here's what Christopher Yoon says in his book, and I quote from that. Self-improvement, a strong will, and diligence cannot and will not lead to sanctification. What was that song we just sang, JT, before the sermon? Have we done that before? That was new. Can we do that again here in just a minute? Pay attention to the words that we're singing there. Because it says what Yoon says in his book. Self-improvement, a strong will, and diligence cannot and will not lead to sanctification. The process of being made holy is radical inward transformation flowing from our union with Christ. God's gracious gift of sanctification should be permeating the whole person, our thoughts, our desires, and our actions. This is gospel holiness. We need to recognize that, church. But we also need to recognize the reality that Jason read earlier in Galatians. That we who have stumbled and fallen need to be restored in a spirit of gentleness. And that we extend grace and mercy to one another. Yoon finishes up toward the end of his book with this. He says, if we're redeemed followers of Christ, we should be open and honest about the fact that we don't have it all together. We'll be a safe, redemptive place for all brothers and sisters to admit together, I'm broken and I desperately need Jesus. And even though our individual struggles on that particular level may look a little different, the overall problem is the same. That problem is sin, and the overall answer to sin is new life and daily renewal in Christ. Amen. That is what we need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we sang it earlier. Remind us of what we sang. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take it and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Seal our hearts, Lord, with the truth of your word. Seal our hearts, Lord, with the understanding, deep spiritual heart level understanding of your holiness. Here's our hearts, Lord. Fill us with the fear of you. Here's our hearts, Lord. Fill us with the fear of sin and its consequences. Oh, God, here are our hearts. Fill us with awe and wonder at your grace that puts that sin on Jesus if we will turn to him as our sweet, gracious Savior. God, I pray for restoration where it's needed. I pray for new life to come into hard, callous hearts where it's needed. Lord, I pray for the gift of repentance where it's needed. I pray for the gift of honesty and openness where we will confess our sins to one another and be healed. Father, I pray for a grace that is evident, contagious, and attractive to a hurting world around us. Father, help us to recognize that we are starving sinners who by grace have been fed your living word. And Father, I pray you'd help us to be quick to give that away as well. And I pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.